Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Being a Fan of Disney podcast. I'm your host, Cody Havard. In this episode, Lou Prosperi stops by to talk about the research and the books he's written about Walt Disney Imagineering. And we talk about how he got into his fandom, how he got interested in writing about Imagineering and how lessons from Imagineering can be applied to other business and non-business settings. And then we talk about some of his impressions of the projects that the Imagineers have done in the parks. This was a lot of fun doing this interview, and I really hope you enjoy it. Please come along with us on our adventure. Welcome, class, to another interesting topic and another fascinating speaker that we have. Um, Lou Prosperi is with us today, and he's going to talk to us about um, a few different projects and books he's written that focus on what we all can learn from Imagineering and from the Imagineering process. Um, and so, so I don't spend too much time talking. Um, I want to get right into it. Um, Lou, welcome to the class and to the show. Um, and to kind of bring us up to, to today, where we can then start talking about the books, um, can you give us some background on to what was your introduction to Disney? Um, where does your fandom come from? And then take us up to today and how you got interested in one, researching about, and then two, ultimately writing and talking about Imagineering and the Imagineering process. Thank well, you. First, yeah, you're welcome. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, so in terms of my, my Disney fandom, you know, I grew up, I was born in the early 60s. So I grew up with the Disneyland TV show, or The Wonderful World of Disney, Wonderful World of Color, or whatever it might have been called at the time, um, show. And so I was a general sort of Disney fan. And then um, I was definitely interested in uh, the animated films, particularly the the, uh, the the animation renaissance that was kicked off with The Little Mermaid. And in fact, um, on my second date with my wife, we ended up watching The Little Mermaid together um, on videotape at her, at her house. Um, and so I had been a Disney fan of, at a general sense through most of my life, um, you know, at one level or another. You know, and we, you know, as we go through high school and college, we sort of fade in and out of different fandoms just because of, you know, the way things go, you know, I was way more into comic books for a little while or movies or music or whatever. Um, but my my real fandom sort of um, got spurred on my first trip to Disney World, which was on my honeymoon. My wife had been many times, but I had never been. And so our my first trip was our honeymoon in, in May of 1993. And, uh, and in fact, our very first day, the first day we got there, we went we stayed at, we were staying at the Polynesian Resort and we went to Epcot first. And it was a rainy Sunday in May. And back then that meant it wasn't crowded. Like there were times when the parks weren't crowded as, as they are now. And so we literally walked on everything in Future World, like one after another. So we did Spaceship Earth, we did the Universe of Energy, we did uh, World of Motion, 
uh, Horizons, and then World of Motion, sorry, maybe even Body Wars and the Wonders of Life, and then a crossover to Journey into Imagination, and then eventually the land and the seas, um, the living seas. And um, I, at the time, I was working as a game designer in the adventure game industry, uh, working on a pencil and paper role-playing game. Um, the game's called Earthon, similar to Dungeons and Dragons, you know, a typical, you know, ad adventuring party, wizards and warriors and stuff. And so I was working in a creative field at the time. And, you know, I had gone to college for music composition. And so I did a lot of music writing and arranging. Um, so I had spent that time in, in this, a creative field. And so I had spent a fair amount of my time in creative endeavors of, of one sort or another. And, but when I got to Disney World, I saw creativity sort of personified in a way I had never experienced before. And it really, the moment that it really struck me the most was in the original Journey into Imagination. There's a, a portion after you meet Figment and Dreamfinder and after you leave the turntable and you start moving through the genres, there's a part where it talks about literature and there's literally the word avalanche was carved of stone and sort of um, it was like sculpted around a, a passageway. And I just remember seeing that and just my eyes couldn't have been bigger. You know, it was just so amazing. And to this day, Figment's in one of my favorite characters. And, um, but I wanted to think about how, how do they do this? And, and how can I apply what they do and how they do it to what I do as a game designer. Because I've always been a big believer in um, what actually Brian Collins, who I believe has, has participated in your class before, he's a former Imagineer, he calls creative cross-pollinization, which is the application of principles and ideas from one field into another. Um, and so I've, you know, uh, I used to listen to Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, and one of the things he would say is, you know, read outside your field, and you know, you never know. Learning how a helicopter runs and works might help you run your business one day. You just can never tell. And so, and so, I came at this new ex expression of creativity with this: what is there? I can, I want to learn about this. How can I? How do they do this? And how can I apply some of it to what I do in, in the game design field? Um, and so I, I went again in 1995 with my family to celebrate my parents' 40th anniversary. Um, and then I didn't go again in, until uh, 2005. It took a while. We had kids and life got in the way. Mm -hmm. But along the way, um, um, Disney Hyperion Editions, I think, published one of the first big books about Imagineering called Walt Disney Imagineering, a behind the ears look at how the magic is made. It's a big coffee table book. You may be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it started me to sort of piece together how they do this, you know, and, and through that, I sort of figured out the big, the big pieces of their process. You know, they, they do blue sky and then they develop that and then they do the detailed design and then they finally do the construction. And so Ever since I had that book, and even a little bit before that, I, I viewed that as an, a source of insight for the creative process and creativity. Um, then when I went back in 2005, I discovered that in the meantime, a whole lot more, a whole lot other books have been, been written. And so I started collecting and, and looking for more 
insights and more ideas and more, you know, stuff to learn and just to learn a little bit more about it. So I went again in 2005, then in, and, and then in 2010, and then I was back in 2011, I think, and then 13 and 14. And so I started to go a little bit more frequently. Uh, we actually had two trips planned in 2020, mm. um, but both were canceled because some other thing came up that year, <laughs> um, you know. So, but along the way, I've, I've amassed this Imagineering library where I've tried to learn more and more about how the Imagineers do what they do and, uh, and the principles behind it. And, and that um, has sort of led to my eventually to writing the, you know, I've written three books about Imagineering specifically. So they're about Imagineering, but they're also about how to apply the principles that Imagineers use to other creative fields. Um, so it's not just books about Disney, but it's also a book that you could, you know, hopefully read and apply to your business or apply to whatever it is you're doing. Um, so, so that's sort of it in a nutshell. Yeah, and thank you for that 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 intro and background. And and two quick notes. Uh, my my favorite, at least Parks character, might be favorite Disney character is Figment as well, um, because the when I was a kid and met Figment, it was hey, that's a cool looking dragon. And 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 I met Figment when the walk around Dreamfinder was there. Mm-hmm. And so we got to interact and interact with the puppet and everything. Um, but then as you get older and you start to, you know, think about what does he represent and how he represents um, imagination and creativity being creativity being like imagination kind of put out for everyone else to see or consume. Right. And um, so it, it was just interesting that you to, to note that. And then I, I want to, briefly ask about the you said you grew up watching the Disneyland um, specials and the Disneyland weekly series and it was a as people who've seen those know it was a regular occurrence for Walt Disney himself to kind of walk through Imagineering and um, excuse me most people have probably seen the walkthrough where they're talking about the Pirates of the Caribbean and, and they're talking about some of the, the bird animatronics and audio animatronics that are going to be in the Tiki Room and Haunted House. And, you know, then everybody, most people remember the, the famous video where he talks about Epcot for the first time. Um, did those kind of behind the scenes videos, um, how much do you think that impacted your fandom but also interest in kind of delving more into not just what disney is but what the imagineering segment or imagineering section of disney is what kind of type of impact do you think those had well i think if it did it's more of a subliminal thing than an obvious thing um i have I know I remember watching the show, but I only have a couple of very clear, distinct memories of particular shows that were on. Like, for instance, for whatever reason, I have a very clear memory and recollection of one called The Whiz Kid and the Mystery at Riverton, mm-hmm. which was about this kid inventor who ends up solving a mystery, you know, in his town. It's just one of those, you know, I think they showed it once and it was never on again, but I have a very clear recollection of it. 
I don't recall specifically, you know, I can't remember a time specifically. Oh, I remember I was on my couch with my parents and I saw Walt Disney walk through Imagineer and talk to Mark Davis or any of, any of that. Um, so I don't know that it goes that far. I, I don't, and also I would have been three or yeah. four when he died. So most of that hadn't really aired by the time I might've remembered it um, or been watching it. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. It, it may be there deep, deep under the, under the covers, so to speak, but not in a conscious way. Yeah. Yeah. So then next you talked about, you got into why you got interested in imaginary, um, and how you amassed your, your vast collection <laughs> of imaginary um books about imagineering and, and hard to get information about the segment uh or the section but then you also talked about how you wanted to use imagineering to try to help you and then further help others to see how can you apply these principles to in other portions of your life or other portions of your business, um, what have you. And, and you're not the first per, or you're not the only person to do that. Imagineering is something that has been studied extensively. It is unto itself really one of those like kind of shining examples of, of creativity, but also communication and um, organization. What do you think it is about Imagineering that makes so many people want to look for guidance from Imagineering um, and, and how to improve their business, their life, what, what have you? I, th I think part of it is we Hopefully, we're always looking to learn new things, right? Whether conscious, and I think we are, whether we're conscious about it or not, you know, whether or not you call yourself a lifelong learner, I think human beings are wired to try to learn new things. Um, and I think we are also sort of wired to look for um, success as a, as a model or a source for ideas, right? You don't look at you know, even though it's true, we learn as much from our failures as we do from our success. You don't necessarily want to go and, you know, research what are the biggest Broadway musicals flops ever and what are the lessons I can learn about that. Now, there's plenty of lessons there, right? Um, in fact, uh, there's an interesting book about D Disney theatrical productions that looks at three of their plays. One is The Lion King, one is Newsies, but the middle one is Tarzan, which was not very successful and it sort of explores couple of the reasons why so it's not to say that you don't want to look at failures for lessons there too but obviously if you want to look for role models or insights you want to look at success and i think you know with with the exception of the handful of times where just certain attraction just doesn't jive with you for the most part it's it's very clear i think to me at least that imagine the imagineers are are successful at what they do and they try to communicate an idea or a concept 
um, even with restrict with limited constraints, you know, limited budget, whatever, they're very successful at immersing you in an experience and creating an emotional response in you and conveying a story to you. And so I think it's hard to deny their level of success and their level of expertise. And so anyone that you see who's doing like, if you want to, you know, when I was growing up, if you wanted to learn how to be a basketball player, you study Larry Bird, mm-hmm. you know, right? Especially I'm from the Boston area, right? So, you know, you, you look for Example, uh, exemplary examples. And so in this case, Imagineers, the Imagineers are so good at what they do, they're a natural source to turn to like, um, they're so good, you know, like they created Expedition Everest, you know, like that's just an amazing experience. How do they do that? And just, um, just from a pure fandom, oh my God, I love that ride. I wanna learn everything about it point of view. Even even that alone, just because you want to know about it, may highlight some insight that you can use later off someplace else in your life too, right? Whether or not you go into it like, I want to learn how to be better at running meetings, and I want to use Expedition Everest as my example, right? Bizarre connection, but um, even if all you want to do is, I just love the ride and want to know everything about it, you may learn like simple thing like they had to build the track and the mountain and the facility all sort of at once in sequence so that they could actually get it all done or the way they did the rock work you know um with with actually they built scaffolding into the mountain and had some of it extend had some pieces extend that they could put scaffolding on and then they cut it off and then they sort of put the mountain around it and that's like just little things like that um lead us to insights that we can use in, in, in other fields, whatever that might be, you know? Um, So Um, I hope that's responsive. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, also on, on Expedition Everest that the, the reason um, the Yeti can't be fully removed and and is because that's part of the foundation of the show building. And so you, you move that, remove that part. Well, then you're, compromising the rest of the show building um and the integrity of the construction um and another thing that i find very very interesting because i love learning more about um how the company like the operation side of the company as well Mm -hmm. i love the creative side of it i love the operation side of it as well that you know so for instance when when something happens at, at, or even the way they, they label their onstage and offstage areas and, mm-hmm. and how they, they, you know, kind of put on the show and then everything happens behind the scenes. Or if you go to Walt Disney World, you don't see people walking in lands that don't belong there because they have the utilidors underneath. Like I, I just enjoy learning so much about the many different aspects of the company and so on a on a broader level um not not necessarily i won't necessarily ask you why people are so interested in learning more about disney and using disney as examples but for the company to essentially to not try to control the narrative all of the time and allow people to write books about certain sections, mm. to have classes and podcasts and everything about that. 
um, it's, it is very beneficial for the company, but it's also beneficial for everyone else. Right. Yeah. Why do you think that beneficial relationship exists between the company and all of their subsidiaries and the fans and then moving from fans into using that information for to to benefit other areas well so first i you know i'm i think i'm like you and that i'm fascinated by the company too um i've read plenty of books about you know management change-ups michael eisner's book and bob Iger's mm-hmm. book and disney war and some of those others um and I'm also, you know, when I go to Disney World, I love the attractions, I love the parks, I love the lands, but I'm as almost as fascinated by the logistics of everything as I am by the rest. Just how well run everything is and how efficient they are at moving people around and getting people from where they are, from where they need to where they need to go. You know, the bus system, the boating, the monorail, all that is just fascinating to me that um, the, the sort of industrial engineering side. Yeah. Of, of how the parks run is, is a fascinating subject. Um, in terms of, you know, the sort of mutually beneficial relationship, um, I think, you know, I've talked to a handful of Imagineers and I think, I think everybody enjoys talking about what they do with people that care, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, um, and so they enjoy, you know, I did, I don't know if you've ever done this, um, but there's a, a, a dining event or thing you can do called dine with an Imagineer or lunch with an Imagineer. And you can have lunch with an Imagineer and it's, it's at the, Brown, the Hollywood Brown Derby at Hollywood Studios. And it's a, a very intimate affair that's an Imagineer and eight people in a private dining room for like two hours. Yeah. So it's, it's a really fantastic experience. Um, and I think in doing that, and I think you also see this in various Imagineering, Imagineer interviews that you'll see on a lot of podcasts or, or things, people enjoy talking about their work and what they do. And as long as it doesn't um, harm either party, you know, sort of like what you said about fandom in general, right? As long as, if you love something, as long as you're not hurting somebody along the way, there's no downside to it for for either side right um and so from disney's point of view you know i can't imagine what possible harm there could be from somebody like me writing books about imagineering providing i don't slander them or you know or or, you know it's not a negative negatively slanted thing um so i think i think that's part of it you know and so even at the individual level we enjoy you know being appreciated for the work we do and talking about the work we do and it just grows and grows and grows, you know, like it, it's possible that some of the upper management at Imagineering don't like the fact that people write books and articles and podcasts about it because they prefer to keep it behind wraps because for many years it was pretty secretive what they did. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think that's the case because their website is far more explicit than it's ever mm-hmm. been. They do those Disney park, videos all the time as they have new things so i think they've you know and even the imagineering story but also yeah. imagineering in a box i don't know if you've seen that mm-hmm. it's an online course on can academy as well as on their youtube channel um i think recently imagineering in particular has sort of embraced this yeah. there's a there's a desire for people to understand what we do and how we do it 
And so we're going to sort of feed that because, you know, you can watch the videos about the making of Animal Kingdom that they did and the making of Expedition Everest and all that stuff, but it's not the same as going and riding it yeah. and experiencing it. And they know that. So all it is, is, is all that sort of stuff is just promotion and just yeah. more enticement for the guests to come and check it out. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of where it's at. I think they, they view it as beneficial because it's, it's good PR, you know? Yeah. And and, sorry, go ahead. And they don't, you know, they don't want to get in it in the way of anyone who's expressing their love for what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's what I was, that's what I was going to say is that the, the, one of the, I guess, strongest signs of being highly identified with something is you wanting to learn more about it right? and you wanting to, you know, produce content about it. One thing we do in this class is we also talk about fan-made content. So we talk about people who make short movies and people who make um, radio dramas and, and write books, um, sort of fictional books about the characters mm-hmm. um and it's you, you know that's part of fandom is, is and so yes to to the the brand it is all promotion right i mean it, it is just additional ways to engage with the brand that people really really enjoy so so i want to i i am um as i said before we started recording i am reading one of your books your third book um the so to get into the books can you tell us about the books you've written and the um kind of a a brief synopsis about each um because then i i have several questions about the book (laughs) that i'm reading now and the approach that you took because it's fascinating sure so i mentioned earlier i had this sort of obsession about learning more about imagineering and how i might apply it to other fields and I had identified sort of in broad strokes the process that they use um, and one day I was on a business trip to California to San Francisco and I had with me um, Jason Searle's Pirates of the Caribbean from the Magic Kingdom to the movies so book Jason Searle is a former Imagineer who has written a number of books about the parks particularly about pirates and the Haunted Mansion and so I'm reading this book about Pirates of the Caribbean, and he's talking about, he's actually quoting another book, a book called Disneyland Inside Story by a former Imagineer named Randy Bright, who was talking with Blaine Gibson, the legend, the Disney legend, sculpture, legendary sculpture who sculpted the partner statue and as well as um, the Haunted Mansion characters and the Hall of Presidents and right, about creating readable scenes. You know, that we have to create, in a, in a dark ride, you only have a few seconds to communicate an idea, so we have to create a readable scene. And I was doing a lot of training at the time. I happened in my job, I was doing a lot of training and I thought to myself, that's what we do when we develop training materials and we create, a, you know, we grab a screenshot or, draw, or provide an illustration or a diagram. We're simplifying a complex subject. We're making it readable, like the Imagineers make a scene readable in their scene. So that got me thinking, and that sort of tied into the process, though this was not a part of the process. This was sort of something that they did. So then I thought, well, what else did they do? So I started reading through my my library again, sort of with this question in the back of my mind, 
what are the things they do that might apply to instructional design? And that was my focus at the time. So I initially developed a presentation with 10 or 12 principles of, of Imagineering. And I did an internal presentation from some folks on my own team about applying them to instructional design. And then following that, I sort of fleshed it out a little bit more and I came up with 15 principles. Um, that arranged themselves into a pyramid. Well, they didn't arrange themselves, but when I looked at them carefully and, and aligned them, they formed a pyramid. So there's five foundational principles, then you know four other related and three related to each other and two and one. So I developed another presentation, a more elaborate one. Um, and along the way, I had also fleshed out their process a little bit. And so I developed a presentation that I delivered at a at a instructional design and training development conference um, held on, held by an organization that no longer exists, the Society for Advanced, Advanced Learning Technologies, or SALT. And it was in Orlando, I, I, happily enough. So I ended up going to Orlando to present this, um, to deliver this presentation about applying Imagineering to, to instructional design. Um, it turns out that as I did my dress rehearsal sort of the night before, I realized that I wouldn't fit in the time allotted, so I had to cut a whole piece out of the presentation. I cut the process piece out, and I focused on the pyramid. Uh, and it was pretty well received, and on that trip, I got to go to Disney World, and that was kind of cool. Um, but all along, I had this thought that with if I broaden this a little bit more and maybe talked about how these principles also apply to game design or something, maybe there's a book here. And so I started outlining and drafting little bits here and there and then life got in the way and you know I would get distracted by something shiny and I would start doing something else um but then I get an email so and when I did this presentation I posted the a pdf version of the presentation on scribd and and um scribd.com as and slideshare.net a couple different places out there and uh I got an email from uh the publisher of the guy runs theme park press and he said i found your imagineering presentation and i think it's great and i think if you broadened it a little bit and maybe talked about game design i think there's a book here so he had the exact same sort of thought i did about the content so i got in touch with him and uh that's sort of the birth of the first book the imagineering pyramid um and originally it was it was um the imagineering toolbox which is now the name of the series mm -hmm. um and the original intent for the first book was to talk about this pyramid of 15 principles, but also the process that the Imagineers go through when they, you know, say, we need a new ride in Fantasyland. We need a new attraction in Fantasyland. How did they go from there to opening Seven Dwarfs Mine Train years later? You know, what is the process? Um, so I worked out an outline. I started writing it. Along the way, I realized that I had too much to say to fit in one book if I was going to do both. So we agreed to take the process out. So the first book is The Imagineering Pyramid, and it's about using Disney theme park design principles to develop and promote your creative ideas. And one of the sort of fundamental premises of the first two books is that creativity is something we all need and all do. There's a creative aspect to just about everything. You know, a filing clerk who comes up with a new way of doing what they do is applying creativity to their job. And in a way, they're applying Imagineering to their job because they're taking technical know-how and creative imagination to do it, which, you know, that's the definition of Imagineering, right? And so 
the the goal of the book is to illustrate these 15 principles with an eye of specifically not just how they're used in the parks, but what is the underlying principle at work and how you can apply it to other fields. So for example, you know, the 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 bottom tier starts with it all begins with a story. So we know story is very important at Disney. And it's sort of the fundamental building block of everything they do in Imagineering. They identify a story and and not necessarily a narrative, right? Not a, you know, um, act one, act two, act three, rising tension, denouement, falling action, any of that stuff necessarily, but a story as in the underlying premise on which an attraction is built. Um, and that informs all the decisions making going forward. So whenever they decide what color should we make the walls, well, this is a haunted mansion, so we don't want it to make them bright yellow. We want them to, you know, a very basic example, but but still, you know, to the point. And so for each of these principles, we look at what the Imagineers do and how they do it, and then what it might mean in another field. And then after going through all 15, um, then we also, I look at specifically how they might apply to game design, because that's a field I had worked in, how they might apply to instructional design, which was the origin of all this. I felt you know, that was a natural thing. And then how, do, how they apply to management and leadership. And, and not only in terms of how a manager does their job, but if a, if a manager is leading a team that's doing creative work, how to facilitate these techniques and principles as well. So that's the first book. And I know, I mean, I could talk through all 15 principles, but we'll, we may get to some more of them later anyway. Um, and we'll probably touch on a handful of them as we go through. Um, so then the second book was the process. And so what started as part two of this bigger book became a whole book on itself. And it's the Imagineering process. And it's, again, using this, this the Imagineers theme park design process to bring your own ideas to life. And so it explores you know, how they do what they do. And so they start with a need of some sort, some, some party within the organization identifies a need, whether that's the operations people say we need more capacity, or it's a creative need, or whatever it might be. Somebody says, we need a new ride in fantasy lane, we need a new thing in animal kingdom, whatever it might be. Then they move to uh, blue sky, where they create a develop a vision for that to address that need. And when they do the needs too, also is important to point out, they also identify constraints and requirements too, right? And so, you know, we need a new ride in Fantasyland. Well, that means it has to fit the overall themes of Fantasyland. You can't have a science fiction thing in Fantasyland. If we're getting a new attraction in the Asia section of Animal Kingdom, we know it's not going to be um, also a space thing or a dinosaur thing. It's gonna to have to be something based on Asian culture. So they identify the requirements and then the constraints. And some of that is, is budgetary and practical, but some of it's also creative, right? Um, so then they move to Blue Sky. How do they develop? They develop a vision for what to meet that need. Um, and we've all heard about Blue Sky in terms of imagining that sort of their brainstorming process. Once, they, once they've identified that, then they move to, and this is, I should say, this is a very distilled and simplified version of the process um, because it's a very, very elaborate process with lots of moving parts. Um, I broke it down to seven and that was, I think I distilled it pretty well. Um, then they move into concept development where they actually flesh it out and say, all right, so, so for example, we need a ride, we need a new attraction in Asia, in Animal Kingdom. Okay, how about a runaway train ride through the mountains of the Himalayas where you encounter the Yeti, that's their vision. These are my words, by the way, for 
these are my description of this. So then they move to concept development. So what does that mean? Well, then why is there a train in the first place? Why, what is the Yeti? What is the story? What, you know, so they flesh it all out and decide what all do they need to build? What do they need to do? And that's where a lot of concept art comes from. And, you know, the artwork we see, what do they need to do? What do we need to build? Then they move to design, which is how do we build this? You know, we have this cool model and this cool concept picture of this mountain, but how do, how do we build this and make a, you know, how do we make a roller coaster run through it and an animatronic Yeti and all this stuff? Um, and then, and then they finally build it once they've done, you know, and design is sometimes called schematic in their world where they do blueprints and plans and all the technical detail that they need. Then they move into construction where they actually do the building part. Along the way, they use models of all sorts of different types, um, physical scale, scale models, digital models. Um, there's a great video um, with a, uh, I don't know if he's still with Imagineering. At the time, he was a, a VP of Imagineering in Orlando named Jack Blitch. Okay. He did a presentation at the NASA Technology Summit one year, and he demonstrated how the Imagineers use a technology called building information modeling, or BIM, it's called, in the construction industry, to, instead of doing all these drawings on paper, they actually do all of their illustrations, not only the show illustrations, but the technical illustrations in software, and they put it all together in this model, and it allows them to see it, and they can actually, you know, program it so they show how it would be built over time you know like we talked about expedition everest being built over time mm -hmm. right this shows like they lay the cement they lay some of the steel work they lay the tracking then they do the next level and how they do all that um but it also shows them if there's a clash so one thing that happens from time to time or has happened is the architectural and structural people do one set of designs the show people do another and when they get to the field all of a sudden a piece of structural steel sticks out six inches from the end of the rock work so how do you arrange that? So they are able to detect that in the computer model. So, and then once, once they've constructed it, then they do opening. They do what I call the epilogue where they open it and they do, you know, sometimes soft openings and cast member previews. And, and then once it's open, they also do constant ongoing evaluation. And they, there's an, a group within Imagineering called Show Quality Standards, whose job it is, is to go out into the parks and experience things from the guest point of view and look for things that need to be refurbished or things that need to be replaced or changed. Um, so the second book is the Imagineering process. And it, it basically is drills into more detail than I just did about all those seven steps and also does the same thing. It looks at them in generic terms, but also game design, instructional design and management and leadership. So then um, after writing the first book, in addition to moving on to the second, one of the things I, I didn't feel I was successful as successful as I could have been, was in talking about the principles of the Imagineering pyramid in a sort of, in, with, with regards to specific other fields. I had, my original outline had included a whole chapter about Imagineering communication. Um, and I just, it didn't fit as, as the book changed as I wrote it, it just didn't fit, so I, so I let it go. But I decided I wanted to revisit the principles of the pyramid with a specific focus on on communication and that's where the third book the one you're reading comes in um it's focused specifically on how the imagineers tell their stories because that's my metaphor for how the imagineers communicate ideas and so what that book does is it's a tour through the magic kingdom it, it's it's written as a business fable and uh 
what I mean by that, so business fables are basically fictional stories that offer insights and lessons in areas of business or personal development. Some popular examples, the one minute manager is an example of that. Um, the go-giver, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but a very popular one from, from more recent years is a book called Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson. Um, and one of my favorites actually, the one that mostly inspired the book is called Inside the Magic Kingdom. That tells a story of a group of people who go to Disney World for a, a seminar workshop where they learn about customer satisfaction. In my case, what I wanted to do was I, I wanted to just talk about these principles again from a point of view of communication, but I also wanted to show the reader how these principles work, not just tell them that Cinderella Castle uses forced perspective or that Pirates of the Caribbean uses a principle I call readability, the ability to see, you know, that thing I talked about with Blaine Gibson. I wanted to illustrate it and show it. So I decided to write it as a fictional story, as a business fable, where a group of friends are visiting Walt Disney World and they find themselves on a tour of the Magic Kingdom being led by a former Imagineer who shows them how the Imagineers tell their stories as a way to illustrate how they can better communicate in their own jobs. And so in the, in the introduction of, the, of this story, these friends are together, they're having dinner and they're talking about how, you know, they're high school friends who don't get together very often and they deliberately go to vacation together because they wanna to choose to be together, not only get together when one of their friends or parents dies. You know, like sometimes we only get together with people from our past under bad circumstances. Yeah. So they decide to do it more deliberately. And they're talking about their, their lives and their work. And, and they all are struggling in one way or another with communicating an idea to somebody. And so one of them, who's a Disney travel agent, sort of recognizes that and arranges for this tour. And the whole point, again, is here's how the Imagineers tell their stories. And here's how you can use the same principle in your work. You know, so when the Imagineers use a weenie, like at the, you know, Cinderella Castle is the classic example of a weenie, which is a, a visual magnet, mm -hmm. right, that draws the audience in. What does that mean outside, outside of the parks? Well, it's about grabbing your audience's attention, capturing their interests so they want to learn more. You know, in the field I work in as a technical writer, that could be as simple as, you know, thoughtfully written, catchy headings in a table of contents. It could be as simple as that, right? Or in an email, maybe it's about writing a catchy email subject line so you're so the person at the other end wants to read it as opposed yeah. to file it away. Um, so that book is basically this walking tour through through the Magic Kingdom where the Imagineer, former Imagineer, shows them how these principles all work with vivid examples so they can see them at work. Um, and it was, a, it was a lot of fun to write that way. Uh, I got to spend a lot of time looking at the maps, maps of the Magic Kingdom, spent a lot of time watching YouTube videos as well as um, Google has some street views of Magic Kingdom. So I actually walked through the park several times um, to see it from that sort of point of view, you know, like, yeah. oh, this is where the fence begins and this is where the wall ends and this is where the, you know, all those details. I wanted to make sure they were right. Attention to detail is one of the Imagineers principles. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to miss yeah. that one, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So and it's sort of where the third book came from. It, and it's, it's so like where the first two books are very, um it's seemingly technical in nature mm -hmm. the third book is that mixture of and, and i should say the i i'm reading the third book so my 
my impression of the first two books is coming from what you said. Um, but that third book is, it's, I'm glad you talked about and told us what a business fable is. Um, because it's, we talked, when we were talking before we recorded, it's almost like it's this radio drama or a, a even an instructional video that you might watch mm-hmm. that has a story built around it to make it more engaging or creative. Um, and so it's, it's a really, really fun read. And, and, and if I may, for being someone who you describe yourself as a technical writer, uh, it's extremely creative and having like the, the conversations Mm-hmm. and everything we talked about a few of those before um so it, it's very very well done and, and i'm it, I, i'm glad that that's the one i i started with to because it, it's it's that mixture again of like this here's how things are done and here's all these kind of entertaining engaging stories and, and quibbles and everything amongst the participants right um and I, I, I'm also glad you, you mentioned how you, how you researched that, because that was the next thing that I was actually going to ask is, aside from videos and Google Earth and everything, did you ever, when you were writing, did you go walk the parks? Um, or, and it, it, when you've been back after you've written the book, um, are there things that you that you that catch your eye because you've written the book that may not have caught your eye before writing the book yeah so i was i started writing this one in january of 2019 okay um i had just i had been in june of 2018 and i was going back in june of 2019 so i was just i was halfway more than halfway through i think in June of 2019, when I went again, um, and that time I, you know, spent a couple hours one day taking pictures of the specific principles, because I knew I wanted to. I, I might eventually do a presentation about it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure I would include them in the book, but I wanted to have photographic reference, right? Um, and at least one instance, my recollection of the area was wrong, and I had to change a couple of the descriptions of the layout of some things to make because I got there and I'm like, oh, oh, that's not what I wrote about. I guess I need to change this. <laughs> um, but so then I, you know, to your point, I did pay closer attention to some of those other things to make sure that it was, you know, correct as of that time. I mean, one of the challenges is the parks are constantly changing and. Yeah, you know, so uh, you know, at the end, there's an, uh, an afterword that basically says this was written based on summer 2019. Yeah. So, like for instance, they make a point to say that Galaxy's Edge hasn't opened yet, and you know, a couple other things. Um, so, but but yes, I, 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 so I live in the Boston area, and I can't get there, can't get down there that often to do frequent you know, frequent visits. But when I was in the Magic Kingdom that last trip, I was paying very close attention to how things were laid out and how things were and to try to make sure I had the, you know, the overall layout of things correctly or that I had seen, you know, sometimes even those Google map, those Google street views is a little misleading from time to time, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I don't recall, I think actually one of the 
So one of the principles that we talk about, I'll just spoil it, is um, you haven't got there quite yet, is transitions okay. and how the Imagineers manage transitions from scene to scene yeah. or land to land. And one of the um, best, best examples of that, particularly land to land, is the transition and change between Liberty Square and Fantasyland over near the magic, near the Haunted Mansion. And um, so when I was there taking pictures, I'm pretty sure that the pictures helped inform that chapter. I mean, I knew I was going to write a little bit about it, but I decided to go into, into greater detail about one specific element about how that transition works. And it's the pillars that hold up that overpass. Um, and so I don't know how closely you've looked at it. And, and if you actually, if you've read any of the Imagineering field guides, these little pocket books, you know, little book, books like that, they're called the Imagineering Field Guide to the Magic Kingdom or to Epcot or whatever. They're by an Imagineer named Alex Wright. They're a fantastic reference. There's so much detail and so much information about Imagineering hidden inside these seemingly little pocketbooks, right? And it, he specifically talks about this transition. And one of the things that the Imagineers do is they use architectural elements from the other land on each side. So as you approach from Liberty Square, there's actually stonework that's reminiscent of the castle on the Liberty Square side. And there's woodwork and ironwork from Liberty Square on the Fantasyland side. So it's like a visual cross dissolve in a film and you don't even really notice it. Well, the pillars that hold up that overpass also do that. So on the Liberty Square side, they're round wooden colonial style pillars. And on the Fantasyland side, they're square stonework castle-like pillars. And as you walk through them, they literally, the, the, you know, if you're coming from Liberty Square, the, the round um, colonial pillars fill your field of vision. And as you move closer, they move out of your field of vision and the stone ones fill in and it's literally like a literal cross dissolve. Yeah. And so I took pictures of those. And then I, again, I think those pictures helped me rewrite that section or I might not have even had gotten to that section yet um, to really dig into detail to show a very specific example of how this transition and cross dissolve kind of thing works yeah um, so I definitely you know paid closer attention and I can't wait to go again quite honestly to look even closer at some of the stuff that I you know I had seen and I had described but I still want to go look again you know yeah. just um, yeah so. and, and one of the you know one of the things that I I really enjoy looking for the details and hidden details whenever mm -hmm. I go and um, a, a real quick example of that, I didn't know, I was listening to um, one of the, the, the walking tours that, that Lou Mangiello has done, um, where he talks about the transition from fantasy land to Liberty Square, really representing this transition from kind of uh, the, the period of times those were set as well. Mm -hmm. Um, transitioning into the colonial times and one of the things that um, I I typically I regularly go into the Columbia House Columbia Harbor House when I'm there right and you know one of the signs on the signs it has the picture of what served there and kind of the detail that a lot of people who would have been living during the colonial days would have needed those pictures because they couldn't necessarily read the words that were written on the right. sign. And it, right. it, it's all these details. And the one you just described about the transition 
because it is when you're walking you think of you hear the music and then you slowly hear the music maybe start to turn and then it's all of a sudden new music and you don't catch it you don't catch where where was that point where i just left one land and now i'm in this land like now i feel totally engrossed in this land or like you know in this place and so it's so interesting that that you go through that and and that's always been something that's really interesting to me about especially the parks is you can go to the parks and if you don't know any of that and you're not interested in knowing any of that you're going to go and you're going to have a great time but if you are someone who wants to go and see those details, then you're going to learn that when you walk from the hub over to um, Liberty, Liberty Square, you're walking over a river that is, or a body of water that is representative of you transitioning into that area. When you're walking through um, Frontierland, you're walking through kind of that, that span of almost about a century Mm -hmm. of like what it would have been like to live in you know western expansion and from the the Mississippi River over into kind of newer or I guess more modern like San Francisco and everything Mm -hmm. and so you you get to see those type of details if you want them so they tell their stories on so many different levels that you can have that um, and this isn't to this isn't to say anything about anyone who doesn't want to see the details, but you can have that what's available on the surface level mm-hmm. and you're going to have an amazing time. And if you want to know why people don't walk in the middle of Liberty square, then you can get that too. <laughs> if you want to get into that detail. Right, um, sure. And so on that, is there a particular thing that you maybe is your favorite or stands out to you the most. That's one of those subtle details that you're gonna miss unless you're wanting to look for, but when you see it, just adds to your experience. Is there something or two or three things that, that you that kind of stand out to you that really helps you do that? Yeah, there's a couple that come to mind. Um... One is um, another, one thing I want to go, the next time I go, I want to pay closer attention to it. I want to see if I could get in at Rope Drop and run there and get pictures is um, the Diamond Horseshoe mm-hmm. and where it abuts up next to Frontierland. Because that to me is um, an even more subtle uh work of transition than some of the others. So technically, strictly the Diamond Horseshoe is in Liberty Square. And as you move, you know, as you walk from, say, Hall of Presidents, past the courtyard, the flags, and past the Liberty Tree Tavern, you come across the Diamond Horseshoe. And its architecture is very similar, very reminiscent of colonial-style architecture. But it's also just got a few enough details that look Frontierland-like. And so I think if you are coming from Liberty Square towards Frontierland, and you see on your left, you see the diamond horseshoe blend into sort of, you know, the fort Mm -hmm. walls in the back, it fits very well. 
likewise, if you're coming from frontier land, you see, and you're next to the frontier, the fort looking stuff, and you see the diamond horseshoe, it looks like it kind of fits, but it also leads you back into Liberty Square. I think that's a very subtle, but but pretty cool, um, pretty cool one. The, the other the other thing I like that I would say um, is one I just sort of discovered and identified and talked about in the third book is is the use of specific theming in Frontierland to distinguish between the the two mountains that are next to each other. Okay. So. You know, when we talk about theming, generally there's sort of land level theming, you know, big prod things like you won't see polished steel in Frontierland, but you will in, in Tomorrowland, you know. Um, and so Frontierland overall has this rustic look, wood fences, natural materials. But if you look at Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain next to each other, and you look at the details of, say, the doorways and the windows, like... If you look at Splash Mountain and you see the, the doorway and window that are embedded in the wood, in the in the dirt, or even the doorway to the Briar Patch shop, the woodwork, which is plaster or fiberglass, by the way, it's not real wood because you know they need to last for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. But it's it's designed and painted and treated to look as if it came out of an animated film. If you go, if you walk a hundred feet over to Frontier to Big Thunder Mountain, all that woodwork is designed and treated and created to look real, like it's from the real world. And it's just a very subtle distinction. You barely notice it if you're not really yeah. looking for it. But if you do, you see that all of all of Splash Mountain is sort of an animated film brought to life. Even if you look at the briar patch, the briars aren't giant lifelike real briars. They're animated briars, you know, manifested in three dimensions. Whereas Big Thunder Mountain, all the architecture and all the structures are far more real, quote, realistic in terms of their structure and their appearance and their look. So that's another sort of um, level of detail that I that I very much appreciate. Just, you know, the two of them are absolutely are right next to each other, but these tiny little distinctions in theming tell help tell the story and help reinforce the story uh, of each. Yeah, and I I didn't know about the Golden Horseshoe. Um, I didn't know that it was technically part of uh, Liberty Square. So the next time that I go, that that's something I'll be on the lookout for as well. And, and the second point um, about, you know, wanting things in Splash Mountain to look like they came from an animated movie, as opposed to wanting them to look real when you're over at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. I think it's, that, that it'll also be very, very interesting and, and and I guess ahead of the curve for them when that is, when Splash Mountain is rethemed mm -hmm. to Princess and the Frog and, right. and, and seeing um, how that process takes place. Because I think now, because you mentioned it earlier, how Imagineering and, and Imagineers plans and planning are much more available today than they ever were pre-internet. Um, people can get on, and you know they're they're analyzing um, the they're analyzing the patents that they that they filed, and they're analyzing the construction plans. And you know, and again, all of that is just a sign of fandom, and it's the wanting to do that and wanting to gather more information about it and talk about it and make um, you know your your 
people's fan theories and everything. That's all a sign of how identified we all are with this. Um, and, and so I think those things are really, really interesting. And I, I also think right now, and over the next however long this re-theming process takes, uh, we all will be able to see that in real time, how creative the Imagineers are and how creative that process is when they are given kind of carte blanche. They're given, you know, the, the mm. resources to be able to do what they need to do. Um, <clears throat> yeah. It'll, so it, go ahead. So if you don't mind. It'll be interesting to see if it'll be interesting to see if they want to retain that animated film brought to life aesthetic yeah. with princess and the frog because it's notably different than the animated peach the animated portions of song of the south mm -hmm. right so um I, it'll be interesting to see one other point about that i just recently learned that apparently tony baxter is actually going to be consulting and yeah. working on the retheme of of the property that is Splash Mountain that will become themed of something else. So that is is uh, excellent news for anyone who's paying attention to that should be very pleased with that because you know that somebody who cares deeply about all of the things that you care about as a Disney fan is is right there with you. you yeah. Know? Um, and and the you know stretching back to kind of the original story of of the inception of that ride and him being the one to talk about reusing in Disneyland, reusing right. the animatronics from America Sings and how that was kind of developed. And, and then the behind the scenes story also of how you got the name Splash Mountain in the first place, right. you know, like combining um, Michael Eisner wanting to promote the movie Splash um, from Touchstone. Right. And then that was kind of the compromises. Well, we'll call it Splash Mountain, you know. And, right. Um, so two more things on the books. And then, um, uh, as I said, we, we finish up with some, some rapid questions. Sure. Um, yours are going to be a little bit longer because I, I've, as you've been talking, I've been making notes and, and adding <laughs> two or three more things. Okay. Um, but two quick questions about, about the book. One is, um, when, when your characters in the third book are walking down main street, USA. They're talking about, and you name some and explain some of the names on the windows. Um, and it's this, it's this incredible story of, you know, when you walk up and you, you mentioned the tunnel also, it's supposed to be look, it's supposed to look like a theater, uh, the entrance to a theater, the lobby to a theater. And when you walk in, you, you see uh, Walt Disney's name first on the train station. And then you walk in and you walk down Main Street USA and you see all of these names. And then the last name you should see if you look in a particular direction is Walt Disney again and how that's supposed to be representative of uh, credits at the beginning or the end of a movie and the director being first and last shown, things like that. Um, but another thing that they do with that is those are all tributes to real people that have helped the, either the parks they've worked in the company they've mm -hmm. been instrumental to the company in some way so i wanted to ask um did you apply any of those principles in your book i mean the like the characters names or their backgrounds or their um 
their per, their professions. Um, did you kind of draw any inspiration um, from from people in your life that 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 represent those names or professions or anything? And you don't you don't have to you don't have to go too in depth. No, it's okay. Um, actually, yes. Um, so a couple of things. Um, one quick one: the kids, the names of the kids who don't play a big role. They're only at the beginning, at the end, really. Mm -hmm. um, were named for my children as well as some friends who came with us on the trip in July 2019. Okay. So that's where they. And ironically, I wrote them when I first wrote them. I wrote placeholders: child A, child B, mm -hmm. C, whatever it was, right? And then I just did a search and replace. I said, child A is Samantha, child B is Nathan, whatever. And those are my kids. And then Sophia and Emma were the other two. Um, and ironically, <laughs> my daughter ended up with a lot of the very sarcastic lines, <laughs> but they fit her very well. Um, some of the other characters, so the character of Judy, who is the travel agent, yeah. is directly inspired by a friend of mine, Judy LaPlante, who is a Disney travel agent. Okay. She was an early reader of the book and she, you know, um, is a good friend of mine. And um, so, so she is directly, some of the other names are from people that I know. Um, so for instance, the name Mark is the C CEO of a small software company. Well, I happen to know a gentleman named Mark is the CEO of a, of a small bio, uh, okay. um, medical device company, yeah. right? Um, Kim, who, who in the book is his wife, was the original name actually was inspired by the character of Brent, who is a superintendent of schools. Our former superintendent of schools was a woman named Kim. Okay. Um, and I don't remember where Allison came from. I just, just a name that came up. Yeah. Um, I, well, I, I like, I really, really like those details uh, of like, and, and I think it's, it's also a sign of creativity that you as the writer gets to gets to have the opportunity, but also takes the opportunity to kind of draw on, you know, you you have your hidden Mickeys, if you will, right. in the mm -hmm. book. You know, everybody gets to kind of say, well, this was inspired by this or that, I, which I think is really, really cool. Um, with, with your first two books, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, with your first two books, because they are written, as you said, again, kind of technically to get those technical aspects of it. Um, do you find that the readers of those books tend to be people that are um, working in businesses and maybe they're, they're, they're reading them as a way to, to learn and to help out in those businesses? Um, and also, the reader, the readers of the third book, do you find that that's the same audience or is it a slightly different audience because of the way that you're telling it? You're, you're kind of telling it almost like you are telling this fictional story, but you're using very real events as they pertain right. to the, the business and what the, the lessons that can be learned. Well, I think, I think the audience for the first is well, it's mixed. I mean, obviously, I sort of hoped that it would, so for the first two, first one in particular would draw um, Disney Park fans in general, mm -hmm. Imagineering fans in general, um, but also 
sort of, you know, business people or, you know, it was, it was definitely written towards how to be more creative and, you know, as yeah. sort of this business creativity book, the first two definitely were, you okay. know, one is things you do to be creative. The other is how to take an idea from, I need the thing to how to make it, you know? Um, so those are definitely targeted um, that way at sort of, and, and I like, I love books like that myself. So I was kind of writing the books I wanted to read, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, the second, the third book, um, what's interesting is I, I read it, I wrote it as a business fable. The intent was to be, to, you know, we all have problems and we all have challenges. We all things we need to communicate. Here are some ideas about how you can tell your story more effectively, you know, tell a story the Walt Disney world way, because who, who's better at telling a story really than the Imagineers. Um, I realized after I wrote it that even without that stuff, it's still a pretty fun little vicarious trip through mm -hmm. the Magic Kingdom, particularly given the timing, since so many of us can't get there mm -hmm. because of the pandemic and things. It's kind of a nice little reminder of what it feels like to walk through the Magic Kingdom if you've been there before. Um, the you know the intended target audience of all has was on the business side. Okay. So you know, like I believe there's lots to learn from Imagineering, and and we can all do better at what we do by looking at these things. Um, but I also hoped, you know, to get the Disney fans as well, yeah. obviously, because, you know, well, I'm and I, 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 I think, I mean, I think you've, I think you've reached that you've, you've reached that goal because as we talked about, if you are someone who wants more detail and wants kind of those behind the scenes things, or, you know, even on, on a certain level, like those trivia points that you could talk about with your friends and you can point out while you're in the parks, um, that, that you, those, the, the books hit that. Um, and then you can also take it further. And as you point out, this is how you can use these, um, for, to, to help in your future endeavors, uh, future and current endeavors. Um, so I, I think they're, they're fascinating. Are there, are there plans for future projects or what are future projects that you have planned? So I have a couple other projects that have been cooking in my head. Um, neither of which really ties into the, the same model as this apply principles to outside. There are just other things I kind of feel I want to write. Uh, one is what I call a fictional history of Epcot, the way Walt wanted to build it. Okay which is imagine we're in the year 2022 and we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Epcot, but it's the Epcot that Walt talked about in the mm -hmm. Epcot film. And how did that happen? And what is it like? And, and that sort of stuff. And again, written as a fictional history, maybe not as a story, but written as if you picked up a book about it, like as imagine you're living in the world where that happened and you could pick up a guidebook mm -hmm. about it or a commemorative book about it to tell how it was built and that sort of stuff. Um, so that's one, um, which I have sort of mixed. I, I want to do it, but I'm not sure it will be, I, I hope it's well received. I don't want to, um, in any way disrespect the people that made different decisions. You know, I, it's, it's, yeah. I don't want to say that Marty Sklar and those folks made the wrong choice. It's not at, at all. It's, wouldn't it be cool if we could imagine what might've happened? Yeah. You know, and not saying Walt lived longer. I don't want to, you know, step on any toes of anybody. Um, and I know how 
passionately people feel about all of this. So, so, um, but that's one. The other one is a, a deeper look at some other principles or imagineering principles, not so much about how to apply them other to other fields, but just how they work. And it's more about, so my working title, which maybe starting with the title is odd, but is reading between the rides and the journey from master planning to reassurance and looking at how the Imagineers create these environments, not just attractions, but lands and environments that are so nurturing and reassuring to us. Yeah. Um, you know, one theme that you read about, if you read a bunch of Imagineering, you read John Hench, who was a legendary Imagineer, he talks about the architecture of reassurance. Um, and there's a great book that was part of a, it was written as part of a, a museum exhibit from years ago called Designing Disney, Imagineering and the Architecture of Reassurance. And it's about how the design of the parks reassure the audience and guests that the world is going to be okay. You know, the world is it's going to be okay. You know, like um, just recently I listened to a podcast interview on um, a podcast called the Themed Attraction Podcast hosted by um, two gentlemen from the Storyland Studios, uh, which is a, a themed entertainment design company, uh, Mel McGowan and Freddie Freddie Martin, and their guest was Jason Searle, the author I mentioned earlier from the Pirates of the Caribbean book. And one of the things he said at the end of the interview was he's looking forward to, you know, he 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 feels, and I really believe that that theme parks are going to come back big when we're able to go back to them, because they're going to offer people three things that we that we all need. We need comfort, we need escape, and we need reassurance. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, he pointed out that. You know, in a, in a previous struggle, like say World War II, where there was a lot of rationing and a lot of challenges, you could still go to the movies with people. Like during this pandemic, we, we couldn't even go to the movies to escape to see stuff. We could watch stuff on at home, but it's it's not the same. Like the whole social element was sort of taken away from us mm -hmm. at a fundamental level. And so, so, um, so this other project sort of explores the emotional, the way the Imagineers create an emotional response in the audience and how they create these environments of reassurance. Um, I'm still a little nebulous in some parts, but um, it could be a fascinating sort of exploration. Plus, I want to look at a couple of things I was, haven't been able to really look at in my other books, which are, you know, master planning, uh, thinking called something called area development, where where they focus on the spaces between the things like you know how, when you decide to put two attractions next to each other what do you do in the space in between and how yeah. they look at that as well as placemaking you know how they develop these these detailed places and then this concept of heightened reality you know where main street usa is this sort of idealized heightened version of of 19th century to 20th century main street yeah um, and how all that sort of contributes to these environments and how you can, you know, uh, sort of to what we were talking about before about the attention to detail, you know, you or I probably could go to Magic Kingdom and spend a day and not go on a single attraction and still feel as fulfilled yeah. and as energized and, and cool as we might if we hit all the mountains and, you know, all the other stuff. Maybe even feel more, depending on how crowded it is. And if, if you're waiting hours to get on a ride, you right? Know, you might. Enough. So those oh. are the things I'm thinking about. We'll we'll see if and when they come about. Lately, I've been focusing most of my um, my sort of imagineering time, if you will, on on um, 
sharing ideas about how to apply Imagineering to the field I'm in now, currently technical communication and technical writing, okay. uh, presenting at conferences and online conferences these days. But, um, and I just did a class with the Society of Technical Communication about applying Imagineering to technical writing. Okay. Um, so I've been, been doing some of that lately. Very, very cool. And the, the, all of those projects sound incredibly interesting and, and remind me um, when we stop recording, I, I need to send you with, with your first idea. Um, I, I'll send you over a link or to, to a podcast where um, Benjamin Lancaster, who, who's, who's talked in the class before, he, he does a radio drama based on the prototype world of tomorrow. And it mm, kind of interesting. is people living in you know, what was going to be the original Epcot and kind of their, their stories and things like that. Oh, cool. um, and then to the second point, you know, you, you talk about that, that, that feeling of reassurance. And it reminds me that when the story, when Mickey Mouse was originally being drawn um, and some of the iterations that Mickey Mouse went through was one to make his face a little more round. So it was more welcoming to people and it 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 also reminds me that if you it's a little harder to see now because of all the changes at the park but you could still if you know what you're looking for you can still see it on google maps you know if you look at a aerial view of hollywood studios mm -hmm. there is the mickey right. face um the 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 three intertwining circles or connected circles um and so it reminds me of all of that so those are those are really really interesting things before we get to the rapid questions um is there anything else you think would would be interesting um for anybody watching or listening to know about um kind of the imagineering process wow so um it's complicated it's um it's a very involved process and and what's, what I've learned is when you ask a question of an Imagineer about how does blah work, very often the answer is it depends. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very iterative and flexible process um, that, you know, very rarely, aside from when they reproduce a, an attraction from one park to another, when they're doing new things, it's virtually never the same twice, just because if nothing else, the technology has changed a little bit, you know, yeah. if, if very, if nothing at all, they can use different types of sound system or different lighting or, or different animatronic technology or, yeah. or you know, um, I find it fascinating. Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from it. I mean, I've said this before, but I, I, there's a single message, which is, you know, I think we all um, practice creativity in one way or another. Um, and what I have found generally, you know, I've bought a fair number of books about creativity too, but what I find is they fall into two categories. One is um, how to have more ideas, which is good, but, you know, ideas, one of the things I talk about in my second book is I think ideas are a paradox. Mm -hmm. um, because they're both at the same time, the most important part of the creative process and the least important part of the creative process. Because they're the most important part because until you have an idea, you can't proceed, right? But at the same time, 
um, ask most creative people and they have more ideas they could possibly ever implement. And it's the implementation that's hard. You know, ideas are easy. It's making them come to come to life that's hard. And so in some ways, you know, obviously without the idea to, to build Disneyland, we wouldn't have Disneyland. So that was cool. But let's build a park. Doesn't get you very far until yeah. you have the people to do it, right? Yeah. So it's, there's this sort of paradox about it. The other type of books is just about, quote, how to be more creative, which I don't really know what that means. But what I don't, what you don't find are books of models of creativity and what are, they, what are the people who are being creative, what are they doing and how can you do it too? And yeah. that's what I've tried to do with these, the first two books in particular, which is here's an example of, a, of an organization that's being about as creative as I, 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 as I think you can be. They, they, fat, they touch on so many various forms of art and the arts. There's, there's art, there's architecture, there's painting, there's lighting design, there's sound design, there's music, there's dialogue, there's environmental design, there's in, industrial design. There's so much to one of these attractions um, that it, to me, again, is sort of the best example of the epitome of creativity. And so mm -hmm. if you are being, have to be creative, and I think you do to stay competitive in this world, why not look there for an example of how they do what they do? Yeah. Maybe they've already solved the problem that you have, but you just haven't looked there yet. You know, yeah. I think we often get trapped into staying in our own fields for insight. You know, and as I believe is as a technical writer, if all I ever read is books about technical writing, I'm only going to get so much better. But if I read a book about something else, whatever it is, whatever it might be, creativity or imagineering or whatever, maybe I'll get an insight that helps me understand and figure out a way to solve a problem differently. Yeah, yeah. So. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and I have that's what I, on an individual level, I'm experiencing right now as well, like kind of branching out into other areas and, and finding ways to incorporate everything that you, something you read from another area and how can you apply that um, to your existing knowledge base. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with that and, and appreciate you saying that. The, so the, the rapid questions, um, they are there. You can explain things if you want. You don't have to give any explanation at all. Um, but they're, uh, most of them are based on the parks. Um, and so if, if you're ready to get started, we'll go ahead and get started. The, sure. um, let's, let's give it a shot. The, so I want to first ask about favorite park. And by that, I mean, if you have been to multiple, if you've been to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, any of the international properties, um, is there a favorite property that you have been to? Okay, so I've been to Disneyland once in the 90s for a single day, but I've been to Disney World about 10 times. Um, so my answers are going to largely be based on my experience with Disney World. Okay. Um, and right now, I think this is a tough one for me, but it's it's between the two kingdoms at, and okay. at, at Walt Disney World, the Magic Kingdom because it is by far the most nurturing and reassuring and magical of all of them. Um, but Animal Kingdom is is, is such a, a glorious um, example of Imagineering and creativity 
and uh, between Expedition Everest, which is probably my favorite attraction in the whole resort, um, uh, the a Avatar and the Pandora and that land is is just breathtaking. I have not been in Galaxy's Edge yet, so I so you know maybe next time I go I'll completely <laughs> change my mind and it'll be Hollywood Studios because of Galaxy's Edge. I don't know for sure, but right now it's between those two. You know, if okay. I if I had to only pick those two two parks, it, it would be those two. Okay. Um, if I had to choose between them, it would probably be Magic Kingdom. Okay. Because Cinderella Castle is um, is magical to me. I think I could sit and watch it for an hour and not be bored. Yeah. You know, I just, yeah. So. And my my next question actually was your your favorite ride. Um, so if Ex if Expedition Everest is your favorite ride, do you what what's your your number two on the list? Uh. Well, if I were to go by park, I could tell you, again, okay. not counting Hollywood, not counting Galaxy's Edge, um, Expedition Everest definitely in in Animal Kingdom, the Haunted Mansion at Magic okay. Kingdom, um, Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Hollywood Studios, and at Epcot it's challenging. Um, I, I, I'm torn because I want to say Figment because I love Figment, but that mm -hmm. attraction is really not that great. Um, but I actually, you know what? Frozen Ever After is amazing. Yeah. The the now that I think about it, Frozen Ever After the retheming they did there is amazing. Maelstrom was one of my favorite rides. But it, yeah, but it's so much better. See, Frozen Ever After is is so much better. Yeah, I mean to see what they've done uh, with virtually. The, I mean, I think it actually step for step is the same track. Um, right. It's just they, they uh, changed the load area and unload yeah. area. But aside from that, the change, you know, the switch back and all that other stuff and the backwards and the waterfall, all that stuff's the same way it's always been. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, do you have a favorite show in any of the parks that you've been to? I love Mickey's Philharmonic Magic. Okay. All right. Um, Anywhere in the Walt Disney World resorts or the property or Disneyland property, if you've stayed in any of those, um, do you have a favorite hotel or resort? We tend to stay at the all-star resorts. Okay. All right. Because uh, you might be able to tell, I don't want to spend much time anywhere else aside from the parks. <laughs> and so if all we're going to do is shower and and sleep in one pace and, and eat maybe breakfast, maybe dinner from time to time. Um, we have, haven't found it worth spending two to three times the cost to spend, to stay at even a moderate or deluxe place um, because we're not spending any time at the resort. If I yeah. was going long enough and spend some time at the resort, I probably, I would love to stay at Animal Kingdom Lodge with a Savannah, with a Savannah view. Yeah. I'd love to check out the Wilderness Lodge, but um but we tend to, to gravitate towards all-star music and all-star movies okay? because they still have a lot of Disney fun and energy and, and you still feel Disney, um, but it's, you know, $120 a night. It's yeah. pretty hard to argue yeah. Um, yeah. from the economic point of view. Do you, do you have a favorite restaurant anywhere on property? That could be in the parks, any of the resorts or Disney Springs or downtown Disney and, and mm -hmm. Disneyland. That is a good one. Uh, we enjoy the Liberty Tree Tavern. Okay. Uh, for family style. The other, we also like the Coral Reef. 
Okay. Um, they, those, those two are probably the, the two big ones. Okay. And um, a favorite snack in the parks? Oh, Mickey Mouse ice cream bars. Okay. Right? All right. Yeah. That was that. That's typically the one that Which I go I, with every time. I've struggled with only because my as I go grow older, I I've grown a little less tolerant of lactose and dairy, so it's a little bit of a struggle. But I power through because it's too awesome. Plus, now you can buy them at home. They have, I well, yeah, and now that you can buy them at, and they taste pretty they close, pretty <laughs> close to what you get in the parks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now that you can buy them at home. You can get into a little bit of trouble with that. Yeah. Um, so kind of based on what you have studied extensively, what you've written about, um, do you have, what's your favorite, or, and you could even give two or three for this, your favorite environment or theme? So that, what I mean is like, that would be for a land or potentially even an attraction that has a, a completely immersive area or queue. Do you have a favorite environment or theme in the parks? Hmm. That's a really good one. I think um, Pandora is, is right near the top just because it's, it's just so full of wonder, mm -hmm. um, you know. And when I when I think of Pandora and the attractions, I I and I think of sort of the emotional composition of them. I think it's interesting because I think Flight of Passage is sort of a combination of exhilaration and wonder in terms of the emotions that you mm -hmm. feel, right? Um, whereas Navi River Journey is sort of serenity or tranquility and wonder. And I think I see wonder sort of as being this unifying overall emotional um, palette of that land, just with the floating mountains. And um, it's just awe-inspiring to me. Yeah. So I think that's probably the one, you know, like if I would just, if I had to pick a land to hang out in and just look around in for a couple hours, like you said, you have two hours and you can be in any land and but that's all you can do is just be in the environment. That's probably the one I would pick just because it's there's so much to see and so much to take in. Okay. And we talked about retheming briefly earlier. Is there a you, either favorite or a retheme that you think um, that catches your eye that the Imagineers have done an exceptional job with or, or your favorite one? Um, I think we talked about earlier, Frozen Ever After, I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, there was a lot of controversy about it. Um, I personally believe that there's a lot, there's probably a lot more to the story about why Frozen was put there than most fans will ever know. Yeah. I don't think it's just to stick Frozen in the parks because there's other ways they could have done that and they have done that. You can do a sing-along, there's con shows, other ways that they can bring Frozen to life in the parks. I think there were more factors at play, you know, whether there be, whether they're um, long time rumors of mold buildup that had happened inside Maelstrom because, you know, it's such a moist environment, you know, like maybe, and, and or just that it had low capacity and they just yeah. needed to add more capacity. I think it's, there's more to it. And I think they did a fantastic job. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really great um, 
experience. So that that's certainly one. Um, trying to think of others. Um, you know, less happy with what they did with Figment, but it is better than the interim one that mm -hmm. didn't Figment at all. Um, the C's, I think, is an interesting case because I don't know if you ever went when it was the, the living C's, yeah. but what's interesting to me is they sort of flipped the nature of the pre-show and post-show. So mm -hmm. in the original version, the the movie and the hydrolators and the sea cabs were all the pre-show and the show was sea base alpha that was the main thing to yeah. see now the ride the the short little ride through the nemo thing is the show and sea base alpha is a, is an elaborate post show yeah so it's kind of an interesting sort of flipping of that that whole um experience and how yeah. we take in the various pieces of it um so yeah, that, those are probably the ones that I would would think about. I mean, um, trying to think of others. Um, I I enjoyed Alien Extraterrestrial Encounter. I think it was a great range. I do think it was a little intense for Magic Kingdom, <laughs> but it was a great attraction. It was yeah. far better than Stitch's Great Escape. Um, so. And the last one, is there, what stands out to you as and it could be something big, something small. What stands out to you as most creative outcome that Imagineering has has produced? Again, it could be something as big as an attraction or land. It could be something as small as a sign. It something right. that you feel is just kind of that great example of imagination and creativity from the Imagineering. I, I think it's Expedition Everest. I okay. think that is, is one of the best examples. And again, having not done Rise of the Resistance or any of this new stuff that I've heard fantastic things about, um, Expedition Everest in terms of the, the setting, the story, the execution, the ride experience, it's got it all, you know. Um, it's a different experience at night than it is in the day. Vastly, I don't know if you've done it at night, but it's it's it's. I don't know if it's better, but it's definitely cool. It's definitely equally cool, you know. And I, yeah. it's, they're both worthwhile. Um, you know, issues with the Yeti, notwithstanding, I I. I would love to see the Yeti moving, but I also believe that it's such a small percentage and part of the overall experience that I don't think that it diminishes the ride in any way yeah the ride could have always been the way it is now and it still would be a fantastic experience yeah um, I I have never seen what it originally was um it, it adds more to the experience for me to know the story of the the yeti and and, and the back that's one of those right. things that it it just adds to that that person who wants to know that information, that information is there for them. Right. Um, yeah. So, so it's awesome. I, Lou, I want to thank you for talking with us. Um, this was a fascinating discussion and, and, and sometime um, I'll just, I'll, I'll have to pick your brain about <laughs> all of the research you've done um, about Imagineering and, and the creative process. 
anyone who wants to follow you or engage with you, uh, social media or otherwise, how are they able to do that? So I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Blue Prosperity. I'm on Facebook at Blue Prosperity. Um, I have a blog where I, it's called the Imagineering Toolbox, where I post about not only applying Imagineering outside, but just sometimes just about Imagineering. Um, for instance, I just recently did a, a whole series of blog posts about, it's called a visual companion to tell your own story, the Walt Disney World way, okay. where I have pictures of all the attractions and examples from the book. Um, the, the pictures that I took, that I used as reference, I also, so, you know, for instance, I, don't know, you, I think you said you were in Adventureland. So mm -hmm. um, when you get to the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction, um, the post about that is a picture of the jail scene as well as the pirate chess scene, because those are okay. two examples that I talk about, you know. Um, so I just did a whole series of blog posts there. Um, I have a new one that's going to go up about the Millennium Falcon in Galaxy's Edge. Even though I haven't been there, I just finished reading The Art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, a new coffee table art book that just came out. Um, and it's there's a fascinating little tidbit about the Millennium Falcon and how it serves as a weenie, even though you can't see it when you walk in. Yeah. But because you know it's there, yeah, it pulls you in. Yep. Right. And so it's a whole different kind of weenie, which is this, yeah. what is it? Concept weenie, cognitive weenie. I don't know <laughs> what to call it. Yeah. But it's kind of a fascinating thing that, you know, what is what we traditionally think of as as a visual thing. And I in my books, I talk about auditory weenies too, like a test track. As you mm -hmm. get closer when you hear the track. You hear the car. I think yeah. it draws the audience in the same way. I think when you walk by the bakery and you smell the cookies, I think that works like a weenie too. Um, but those that traditionally engage the senses, I think this idea that you know something cool is there to be found draws you in is is an interesting sort of take on the weenie. So I have a new post that's going to go up sometime this week about that. Okay. Um, so and yeah. that address there is imagineeringtoolbox.wordpress.com. Okay. And and I. I've been to Galaxy's Edge once. And that's very true about the Millennium Falcon. Like you are exploring, searching for wherever that right. is. On the hunt for um, it as soon as you get there, right? And, yeah, and, and whenever you see it, I mean, as a Star Wars fan, you just, that's the only time they, they've built two complete full-size Millennium Falcons. Yeah. And you're looking at one of them when you're in one of the parks it's it's amazing so um well thanks again lou this was awesome and enjoy the rest of your day thank you thanks so much thank you well that's going to do it for another episode of the being a fan of disney podcast i'm your host cody haver I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining us and listening and to say that I hope you found the information, whether content covered in class or interviews with guests, fun, informational, entertaining, and even inspiring. If you want to follow along with the class, you can do so by following me on Twitter at chaverphd. That's C-H-A-V-A-R-D-P-H-D. Or by joining the public group on Facebook, being a fan of Disney. If you want to engage with any of the guests we've had in class, their contact information is included in each of the show notes. So again, thank you for joining us. It was a great time having you. If you like what you hear, please share this out so other people can engage with the information 
possibly learn more about their Disney fandom and their love for all things Disney related. With that, thank you again and have a great day.